This is The Atomic Bombshell, The Minx Devlin Chronicles, a 10-part exploration of the astonishing life and tumultuous times of film noir goddess and 50s exploitation queen, Clara Minx Devlin. The woman who incinerates the screen with her evil desires. Trouble never came in a more seductive package. You know, it's funny. You're a tramp, a slaughter, a cheap, worthless trumpet, and yet I'm still madly in love with you. A Renoir portrait, as written by Balzac, but with the droll irony of Voltaire. She is, in my considered opinion, the most dangerous woman alive. I'm your host for this podcast, Arlie Proctor, along with Ms. Devlin's granddaughter, Hazel Matthews, and film scholar, Skylar DeWolf. In our first episode, we began at the end, with Minx on trial for intent to commit mass psychic mayhem. We learned about Howard Hughes' complex and obsessive relationship with Minx and the circumstances surrounding her mysterious death. Now, we circle back to the beginning. We'll discover how Minx Devlin went from being a neophyte Hollywood starlet to being the number three female box office star in America in five short years. Skyler, how does the ascent of Minx Devlin compare with other Hollywood stars? It varies. It took Humphrey Bogart ten years to become a star, and Errol Flynn became a star with his first picture, Captain Blood. I think the nearest comparable for Minx is Lana Turner. She made her first picture, They Won't Forget, in 1937. Ms. Turner served her apprenticeship with MGM and Andy Hardy and Dr. Kildare Pictures for three years, and then she became a breakout star in Honky Tonk with Clark Gable in 1941. What makes Minx Devlin special is that she became a star without a studio, with just her own talent and charisma. Ah, okay, well, let's let's go back to Minx Devlin's arrival in Hollywood. Hazel? Um, this is from her scrapbooks, The Hollywood Reporter, June 3rd, 1944. Poverty Row Prexy inks Teen Temptress for Indie Prod Prem. Herbert W. Zisman, ace Poverty Row real boss who recently ankled his indie billet, is ballyhooing Minx Devlin for his Spider-Gal premiere release at PRC. Money-spinning mogul expects whammo B.O. for suspenser, which will top-line the emotive stylings of Zisman's preppy protege, footlighting it as the delectable but deadly title character. <laughs> this girl will be the biggest star Hollywood has ever known. Okay, Good. Now, can you translate that into English? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Zisman is Herbert W. Zisman, the Poverty Row filmmaker we met in the first episode. He's the one who, just before Minx's mysterious death, hatched the plan to build Naked World um, in the Nevada desert, which was a super deluxe, bare-as-you-dare nude ranch, with Minx as the headline entertainment. Zuzman is one of the so-called 40 Thieves, this group of exploitation producers who studied the motion picture production code of 1934. That was the one that abolished vice, prostitution, drunkenness, gambling, nakedness, racketeering, murder, and, of course, sex on the big screen. Zuzman then put these crowd-pleasers into the no-budget movies that he distributed himself. Jailbait Baby, which was Minx's first picture, makes so much money that the Poverty Row studio PRC, which stood for Producers Releasing Corporation, hires him to produce a series of teen terror picks called Spider-Gal. Ah, and and this proves to be the first step Minx Devlin takes on her uh, climb to stardom. Now, we've got the uh, trailer for her first film. Prepare yourself for a dramatic thunderbolt of suspense 
Never a movie so daring, so weird, so shocking. Meet the Spider Gal. Well, Jeepers, Barb, it was swell of you to park out here by the lake. I thought we'd just... Why are you looking at me like that? And your teeth, are those? No, no. Spider Gal, a new dimension in screen terror. She's delicious, depraved, and deadly. Introducing screen sensation Mink Stevlin as the deadliest enchantress ever to darken the screen. Don't tell me another member of the Herky High School football team has disappeared. I'm afraid so, Chief. That makes 14. And we've had even more reports of a roving band of love zombies roaming the landscape. If we don't capture this, this spider gal, we may have a full-fledged panic on our hands. Herbert W. Zosman, the movie's legendary Mr. Showmanship, invites you to experience the new pinnacle in nerve-shattering terror. No! No! Ah! That explodes in your face, even as it seizes your brain and forces you to do its evil bidding. Bella Lugosi, Jackie Coogan, and the woman who incinerates the screen with her evil desires, Minx Devlin in Spider Gal, coming soon to this theater. So the first film really sets the template for the whole series. First, there's a weird spider murder. Then local teenagers start disappearing, along with reports of roving bands of teen love zombies. <laughs> the police bumble around until kindly Dr. Bela Lugosi captures her just as she's about to put the bite on some young male victim, and the search for a cure goes on. A spider gal cost $47,000 to make, and it makes 261000 and Minx is the key to its success. She's fresh and sexy, and she answers the question that every moviegoer might ask, which is, why do so many boys keep falling for her? Even though the news is full of reports that a girl who looks just like her is murdering boys who look just like them. And the answer, of course, is obvious to anyone who watches these films even today, which is that teenage boys can't help themselves because she drives them mad with lust. And the barely concealed 1944 subtext for all of the spider gals is a message about the dangers of sexual promiscuity. You bet. A moment of pleasure, a lifetime of despair. Or zombiehood. Exactly. So, PRC releases eight spider gal movies over the next year and a half. There's Spider Gal, Return of the Spider Gal, Curse of the Spider Gal, <laughs> Revenge of the Spider Gal, Mark of the Spider Gal... Spider-Gal meets the gorilla, and... Oh, yeah, then there was Spider-Gal versus Axis Sally, and <laughs> Spider-Gal's Tokyo Adventure, and mm. all but one of them made a fortune. Okay, we're going to take a very quick break here. Now, normally, this is where the commercials would go. But, well, here there aren't any, because this podcast is 100% supported by listeners like you. If you're enjoying the Atomic Bombshell... If you like what you hear, please go to richlyspun.com and kick us a few bucks. We've got a lot more stories to tell, and that would really help us tell them. Now back to this episode of The Atomic Bombshell. Now at this point, uh, Margaret Pendleton Kingsbury re-enters Minx's life. Now she's Minx's adoptive mother. She's the filthy rich producer, very successful of network soap operas, and also an ardent and fanatical communist, which will play a big part in Minx's life. Now Maggie crashes Minx's life with some advice, 
she tells her adoptive daughter, now she's she has a very successful career and she really has uh, found a way to make a lot of money. And she tells Minx, find a powerful man, preferably a screenwriter, who can create a breakout role for her and get it produced to kind of vault her out of poverty row. The man is screenwriter Dixon Cook Jr. The script is called One Way Ticket to Nowhere. Uh, Dixon Cook Jr. and Minx become lovers, and Cook is all set to star her in his directing debut. And what a directing debut that was going to be. Uh, I can tell you something about this because a member of the Dangerous Films Club that I organized named Lloyd McKeewee was the one who found Dixon Cook's personal script. I think he found it at a swap meet in Columbus, Ohio or somewhere, and he sent it to me. And that script is an inspired gloss on Hitchcock's lifeboat, which, except only instead of using a boat, we spend 90 suspenseful minutes, get this, in a stalled Empire State Building elevator. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was a great part for Minx. Uh, She was going to be a Holocaust survivor who recognizes one of her elevator mates, who is a distinguished European professor, who is going to be played by no less than Eric von Stroheim. Oh, perfect, perfect. And she recognizes him as the fugitive Nazi death camp director who murdered her parents and forced her to become his love slave. So, Mm. yeah, that could have been a real star-making role. Right. Only there's a problem. The House Committee on Un-American Activities is about to swoop down on Hollywood. And Cook is a communist. And the studios are starting to get nervous. Now, just about every saga of an actor who becomes a star involves two factors. There's luck and there's timing. And this story is no different. Now, in the case of Minx Devlin, what looks like a stroke of catastrophic bad luck turns out to be, well, well, you'll see. Enter... Orson Welles. Ah, Orson Welles. Well, he was at a crossroads in his career at this time, and in the words of John Ford, everyone knows Orson is a genius. The question is, does he have talent? Uh, I think what Ford meant was, can he make a movie that audiences love and that actually makes money? And that's a big reason why he's asked Minx on a date. See, he wants to make her a real movie star, and in so doing, make himself bankable again as a director. He'll make her a star, all right, through a bizarre cascade of circumstance that will have nothing to do with his career. Should we hear about it from Minx herself? I think so. Okay, we've uh, we've dramatized a section from her diary. I will be playing Minx. Orson Welles has asked me for a date. I'm going with Dix, of course, and Orson's still married to Rita Hayworth, but that doesn't stop me. I'm 20 years old, fearless, immortal, and bulletproof. The only human being on the planet who thinks Wells is more godlike than me is Wells himself. And he feeds me a magnificent line. I simply must see you. You will star in my next movie, a film that will redefine the art of narrative storytelling. And your performance will set a new benchmark in screen acting. I'm desperate to have you, dearest one. Orson shows up dressed in a wild double-breasted drape suit, floppy bow tie, and bebop dark glasses. Mr. Wells and I share a passion, modern jazz. Especially as played by Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker. I love bop, and the men who play it seem superhuman. Orson and I cab it down to Central Avenue. First stop, the Club Alban, where long, tall Dexter Gordon is leading the house band. Every hipster in town is here, and of course, they all know Orson. As we're watching the floor show, Orson bats his eyes and purrs in his velvet baritone. Now about our dream project. 
Yes, that's right. You are part of the dream, dearest one. He's calling it his Bebop Othello, a modern-day musical version set on 52nd Street in New York. Music by the Yardbird All-Star Bebop Orchestra under the direction of Charlie Parker. Of course, I'll play the lead role myself. I've devised a special ebony grease paint. I'll be Styles Bitchley, the world's hottest bebop trumpet king, setting New York on fire with my quintet with the three juices. My drummer is Rimshot Blitz, a.k.a. Iago, as played by Mr. Buddy Rich. And you, my dear, you are sweet Mona Desire, my Desdemona. He kisses my hand. I'm delighted, of course, even though I know he's offered this role to Lana, Ingrid, Paulette, and even his soon-to-be ex, Rita Hayworth. And they all told him to gargle with razor blades. He tells me the whole story, including the stunning finale. We're on stage at a jazz at the Philharmonic concert with a live nationwide radio audience. I finish off the wildest, most frenzied solo ever, one might even call it orgasmic on dizzy atmosphere. You embrace me, and consumed by jealousy, I cut your pretty throat, and then turn the blade on myself. The audience, driven mad by the music, mistakes our murder-suicide for a brilliant bit of theatrics. They riot and burn the house down in an apocalyptic set-piece of orgasmic vandalism. The last shot is all Manhattan gloriously ablaze. I have no idea how he plans to achieve this. Knowing Orson, he'll set up a hundred cameras and really set Manhattan on fire. This music we love, it's a shriek of rage at America's original sin. You see, my dear, it's all about revolution, jealousy, love, hate, enslavement, and liberation. It will be more than a movie. It will be a living social document, a spiritual manifesto. It will be radically different, yet, at the same time, the first true, pure, creative translation of the Bard to film. This is my dream role, and Orson is pretty close to my dream man. We leave the Alabama around midnight and head over to a club in Little Tokyo where Miles Davis has a quartet. After the hot bop of Dexter Gordon, the cool trumpet of Miles Davis parks me on cloud nine. We're on our third martini when this wild-looking guy in a zoot suit asks me for my autograph. As I'm signing, he whispers in my ear, How'd you like to meet Mary Warner? I've never smoked reefer in my life, but tonight I'm flying high. Here's my chance to sample the magic herb that powers my idols to the musical mountaintop. And who knows? Maybe it'll help my bop Desdemona. Yes, I've decided to say yes to Orson. So I follow this weirdo through these bead curtains into a room of creepy-looking, droopy-lidded losers. Zoot Suit hands me a big fat reefer before I can take a single puff. The cops bust through the door, along with camera-wielding news hounds. Turns out the whole thing is a setup. Imagine their delight when Mink Devlin shows up, a certified starlet, the princess of poverty role, nubile, innocent, underage, the whole bit. 
All I can think is, so long screen career, that's a wrap. Now, had Nick Stevlin been under a conventional studio contract at the MGM or Warner Brothers, this probably would have ended her career. But she was an independent. Now, remember what I said about luck and timing. This is 1947. Studios, for the first time, are they're, they're in trouble. Big filmmakers like, uh, well, Frank Capra, William Wyler, George Stevens, they formed Liberty Pictures. That's a threat to the studios. And the movie audience is changing as well. 1946 was the biggest year in movie history. 47, the, the number of people like, decreases by 20%, and television can be seen over the horizon. So the films, they're getting darker. And the newest stars, we're talking people like Robert Mitchum, Ava Gardner, they're rule breakers, and audiences love them for it. So Minx calls her agent, who calls notorious shyster to the stars, Clayton Vanderbeek. Vanderbeek tells Minx what's happened to her. And this is from Minx's journal. The DA behind the bust is Gilbert Scourin, who staged this pot bust stunt so he could grab the headlines he'd need to run for governor. Lawyer Vanderbeek is going to roll the dice big time at the preliminary hearing. If this thing goes to trial, I'm a dead duck. If Vanderbeek can convince the judge it's a loser, I might walk. So what happened? Well, millions of Americans got their news from Walter Winchell in those days. If you tuned into a show, The Jurgens Journal, on May 13th, here's what you and the rest of America would have heard. Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. North America and all the ships at sea. Let's go to press. Flash, Tinseltown Court Clash Shockeroo. Mink Stevlin, the jive-crazy debutante dram actress, recently jammed up when the L.A. narco boys nabbed her puffing loco weed. Beats the beef in a sensational courtroom rumpus that gave this reporter a red-hot case of the galloping whimwams. At the preliminary hearing, Judge Llewellyn Shagnasty is about to gavel the dishy Miss Devlin over to trial when a spunky shyster, the redoubtable Clayton Vanderbeek, fingers the state's key witness, the mysterious Mr. X, as none other than Bugs Hophead Hopper, a needle-jabbing bindle stiff with a rap sheet longer than a Thanksgiving sermon. D.A. Gilbert Scourin claims ignorance and begs the judge to let him try Devlin anyway. Says Scourin, a who's cow vacation might straighten her out. The judge ponders this, and as he opens his mouth to make a ruling, up jumps the devil in the flamboyant form of shoestring cinemagnate Herbert W. Zuzman, who produced said Devlin's money-spinning Spider-Gal films. Seems the prodigious purveyor of poverty row picks known as America's greatest showman desperately needs minks for a red-hot bit of cinema-make-believe that's ready to roll. Case dismissed. Brother, DeMille himself couldn't cook up a flicker with this much whoopee. Timing and luck. Timing because, well, up to this moment, being arrested for narcotics, well, that would be a dead certain career ender for anybody. Suddenly, Minx Devlin proves a pot bust can be more titillating than devastating. And luck, because luckily for her, a new kind of movie was exploding on the movie scene that happened to be a perfect showcase for Minx Devlin. It's a kind of movie we now call Film noir. And in this case, film noir means cheaply produced, underlit, lurid melodramas that expose what the mainstream studios didn't want to acknowledge, which really was that despite winning a war that killed 60 million people, Americans are even more at risk. And that's because mankind has invented weapons that can incinerate the entire human race in the time it takes to make and eat the average meatloaf dinner. 
Now, the right kind of picture with a new kind of actress. The picture that made Mick Stevlin a top 10 box office star in America was Thrill Queen. Thrill Queen, the naked truth about a lust-crazed crime spree, where the blood-red kisses of a wild woman gives her lover white-hot thrills. It burns up the screen with gut-punch force and machine-gun fury. He's Killer Diller Miller, big band sax legend whose lip was damaged in the D-Day invasion. She's Trixie Trent, a leggy bundle of peroxide dynamite looking for a match. Trouble never came in a more seductive package. I like nice things, killer. Lots of nice things. I know how to get those nice things, baby. Do you? Baby, I don't need my horn at all. Just a gat in my head. And a doll like you right beside me. Together, their crimes made them public enemies, and their love made them bedroom legends. This won't be easy, men. The hardened criminals we usually face may be ruthless, sociopathic murderers, but at least they're sane. These kids have been driven stark raving mad by this... this jungle music. Excitement screams like a siren in the night when a weak, willing man falls for a wicked, wanton woman in Thrill Queen, a Zeusman International Pictures release. So Thrill Queen goes out on October 1st, 1947, which just happens to be the same day that U.S. Air Force Captain Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier in his Bell X-1 rocket plane. Makes his performance in Thrill Queen creates its own cultural sonic boom that threatens to level Hollywood. Boy, did it ever. And here's the amazing thing. Thrill Queen goes out as a B picture, but theater owners quickly elevate it to the top of the bill, and they put Minx's name above the title. Hmm. Variety gives her a nickname that, and here's the genius of Herbert W. Zeusman. He, he takes this nickname, and he quickly adopts it, and he ballyhoos in all of his advertising. Minx Devlin, the atomic bombshell. Now, Minx has a review from James Agee in her scrapbook. This is when Agee was the most influential film critic in America. And it says, Newcomer Minx Devlin plays her juke joint hellion with the intoxicating energy of a lightning bolt in a jug of 100-proof Kentucky moonshine. Imagine the sex appeal of a young Clara Bow, the irony of Dietrich, and the frank, slightly coarse seductiveness of pre-code Joan Crawford at MGM. All this in a moon-faced Bobby Soxer. She's riveting, raucous, sensual, and memorable. More, please. (laughs) (laughs) Herb Zosman brings Throw Queen in for $183,000, and it makes, hold on to your hats, $2,450,000 in its first year. (laughs) And even before Throw Queen is released, Zosman puts her in a second noir epic, which is, uh, being Zosman... He knows where to get a dollar. It's (laughs) nakedly based on the notoriety of her pot bust. This is the movie Jive Crazy. (laughs) And here's why Dixon Cook is still such a legend among screenwriters even today. Cook agrees to write the script for the movie, but only if he could do it over a weekend and if he could have 48 hours worth of whiskey and dexedrine. Ah. 
and if he could be paid $50,000. So Herbert Zuzman happily says yes to all three conditions. According to her journals, Dixon Cook understood Minx Devlin's appeal, her, her spontaneity, her unapologetic sensuality, her obvious pleasure in breaking the rules. Um, and what worked in Thrill Queen works even better in Jive Crazy. What you're about to see is an actual simulated case history from the United States Department of Marijuana. This is young Peggy Peterson, a pretty young suburban housewife who misses the thrill of building B-24 bombers. She's eager for a new thrill, and that thrill is going to drive her stark, raving, jive crazy. Minx gets lured into a reefer den owned by a mad doctor who drugs her, kidnaps her, and plans to kill her as part of a plot to run off with his nurse. And luckily, she's saved at the last possible second by... Rip Murdoch. U.S. Reefer Squad. Doc, you're all washed up. You and every other reefer racketeer who want to turn ordinary citizens into doped-up zombies. Take him away, boys. Dollface, you come with me. This case is closed. Yep, that's how it ends. It's the old C.B. DeMille formula where you wallow in sin for 88 minutes and then you end up with two minutes of redemption. Now, Thrill Queen makes Minx a star, but Jive Crazy, that proves it wasn't a fluke. Minx Devlin, well, it turns out she has something people want to see, and they're willing to pay for it. Yes, yes, and and that something starts to become codified, because in both of these films, Minx is sexy and doesn't apologize for it. She takes what she wants, and if society squawks, she shrugs and moves on. Men want her, and women want to be her. Uh, this makes certain people very angry. Jive Crazy is a film that caused J. Edgar Hoover to opine before Congress about Minx Devlin in that clip we play before every episode. Here is the complete quote. Minx Devlin is something new as a film personality, a public menace. She is unfit to share the screens of our nation's cinemas with upright performers such as John Wayne, Adolf Manju, and Ginger Rogers. She is, in my considered opinion, with her history of wanton sexual peccadilloes, her proclivity for a promiscuous narcotics usage, and her known penchant for associating with communist agitators of the Negro persuasion, the most dangerous woman alive. J. Edgar doesn't have a chance, because Jive Crazy crashes the $3 million mark on a poverty row sub $200,000 budget. It is a money harvest. In the words of Variety, Minx mints moolah as America goes jive crazy. <laughs> See, they don't write headlines like that anymore. <laughs> they sure don't. Now, by the time Jive Crazy finishes its first month of release, the biggest Hollywood studios are desperate to sign her to a long-term contract. Very few actors ever enjoy this distinction. Now, here, the three biggest studios in Hollywood are chasing Minx, trying to outbid each other, desperate for her services. She's not just a new star. She's a new kind of star. Her diaries chronicle her journey through the studio system circa 1947. I'll read as Minx here. First stop, MGM, where Louis B. Mayer buys me a big bowl of his mother's famous chicken soup in the commissary and then pitches me a musical romance on an ocean liner called Nautical But Nice. 
with Peter Lawford and the Xavier Cougat Band. It's not really my style. So from there, I go to Paramount and the office of C.B. DeMille. Um, I will assay the role of Mr. DeMille in this uh, reading. DeMille's office is as big as a Zeppelin hangar and filled with stained glass scenes from the life of Christ. Finally, C.B. turns and stares directly at me. No hellos, no welcomes. He's dressed like the field commander of a Prussian cavalry battalion. The performance has begun. As we open, you, Prudence Madison, are on trial for murder. Your husband, Edward Arnold, the richest man in the world, has been found dead in what looks like a suicide. The district attorney, Gary Cooper, accuses you of the most sensational crime of the century. He claims that you've bewitched your husband, that you are a sorceress. The courtroom goes crazy. You deny everything, and yet you can't account for your whereabouts in the night of this horrible crime. Now you've got to make a decision, Prudence. Will you allow the court to hypnotize you? To find out if you are, in fact, an enchantress? Your defense attorney, Victor Mature, who is secretly, desperately in love with you, urges you to put yourself in the hands of famed nightclub hypnotist Madame Zelda, played with Gypsy Fire by Paulette Goddard. You go under. Instantly, we flash back to 17th century Massachusetts, Puritan times. You're in the docket again, on trial for, you guessed it, being a witch. And who is prosecuting you? None other than Gary Cooper. And what is your crime? Betraying your husband, the Reverend Edward Arnold, by making passionate, forbidden love and bearing the child of fur trapper, Victor Mature. Do you know the penalty for witchcraft? Burning at the stake. And so you shall be, in the largest conflagration since Rome itself burned in the violin stylings of Mr. Nero. Of course, you're saved at the very last possible second by a lovesick victim mature. But as he's carrying you off, you stare at Cooper. But no, it's not just a stare. It's a spell. You strike him dead with your hate-filled glance. In fact, he not only dies, he self-immolates in a glorious technicolor fireball, the greatest screen effect since I parted the Red Seas. And yes, that's right, the proof is undeniable. You really are a witch. Now we're back in the courtroom. Even District Attorney Cooper is open-mouthed at this shocking revelation. No more questions, Your Honor. Your attorney, Victor Mature, moves to have your testimony stricken. She was under hypnosis, Your Honor. She wasn't aware she was incriminating herself. But the judge, I'm negotiating with several members of the Supreme Court, refuses. The jury retires to consider a verdict. Just as the foreman is about to speak, you, Prudence Madison, bolt for an open window. Dive out, headfirst, plunging 31 stories to your death. Victor Mature is helpless to stop you. He looks down at the street at your dead body, which bursts into another glorious Technicolor fireball, just as the jury foreman reads their verdict. Not guilty. And then DeMille turns back to the stained glass window and says, I made Gloria Swanson the biggest star in the world. Colbert, Stanwyck, Paulette Goddard, I made them all stars. And I can make you a star. He waves his hand, and I'm dismissed. I love that story. <laughs> so where does she go from Paramount? Well, Minx's next step is 20th Century Fox. And Daryl F. Zanuck himself 
pitches her the usual seven-year deal, and then Aaliyah Kazan walks in. He's somebody that Minx idolizes. And Kazan tells her that he loved her in Thrill Crazy, and then Zanuck hands her an original screenplay by no less than Moss Hart and Ralph Ellison. And it's called The President's Mistress. It's all about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, which, when you think about it, is pretty amazing for 1947. And Minx is flummoxed, and she's wondering if she's up to playing a Negro slave. So Kazan erupts. Now, I will play the part of Elie Kazan. This is from her journal. This is what Minx said actually occurred. Kazan says to her, Damn it! I want you to play a woman. Proud, lusty, smart, seductive, filled with rage and hope and compassion and bitterness. I don't want to make some noble statement about the human race. I want riots in those theaters. I want the men pissed off because they've got a hard-on for a black chick. And the women? Well, you got the idea. Now think about it. We can do some interesting work together. And who knows? We might even make history. Yeah, and Minx is convinced. So she tells her agent, Cece Bliss, she wants to make this deal. And then fate intervenes yet again, because the next morning, the 20th Century Fox limousine shows up to take Minx to Zanuck's office to sign the contract. Only it's not the 20th Century Fox limo. And Minx realizes she's being kidnapped. The driver delivers her to an El Segundo airplane hangar housing the HK-1 Hercules aircraft. A.K.A. the also known as the Spruce Goose. Yes, and there, with the plane, is Howard Hughes. And this is their first meeting. He has seen all of her movies, like ten times. So Hughes flies her to Catalina Island on his amphibian Zerkorski, and after dinner, they take a moonlight stroll on the grounds of the mansion. And he tells her he's not going to let her sign with Zanuck at 20th Century Fox. She cries foul, and he hands her a sheaf of papers, and he tells her to read them, and after reading them, she still wants to sign with him. Then he'll drop her off at the studio gate himself. Um, I, I actually found those papers in her scrapbook. Right, we have them right here. This is the actual paper that, uh, in fact, uh, Hughes handed to Minx Devlin. Now, imagine her reading this uh, at the time. It says, Transcribed conversation between DZ, Daryl Zanuck, E.K., Ilya Kazan, recorded Fox Studios, 1811-5348, transcribed Romaine Office by number 43, delivered HRH, that's Howard Robard Hughes, 2310 uh, by N.D. Zanuck. So, what do you think? Kazan. I'd fuck her. She's a fucking firecracker. And if I'd fuck her, guys in the audience will want to fuck her. Good, great. Now, you really want her for this picture? I thought I was just dropping by to do you a favor. You were. You told me we had Jean Crane all wrapped up. We do. Or you can have Tierney if you want. <laughs> She's a fucking nutcase. Well, how about this deviling girl instead? She'd be a hell of a lot cheaper. <laughs> like I need the headache. Give her to Hank Hathaway. Put her in a couple of crime pictures and then we'll see. Give me the Crane broad, or better yet, borrow Ava Gardner from MGM. Now, who are you going to give me to play Thomas Jefferson? And don't tell me Ty Power or I'll puke. Ugh. Um, so Minx is weeping as Hughes tells her why he bugged Zanuck's office. He's about to buy RKO Studios, and he's going to make a new kind of movie with a, a new kind of star. And that star is Minx Devlin. They kiss, and they fly home, and when the limo driver drops her off at her home, he hands her a box which has an opal necklace with the Cartier label still attached. And the note says, Clara, thanks for letting me kidnap you. The world can be yours. Love, Howard. 
next week on The Atomic Bombshell. Miggs' career takes off until her adoptive mother betrays her in the worst imaginable way, and her life comes crashing down around her. That's episode number three, A Tale Told by an Idiot, including a lurid report on what just might be the most insane big-budget Hollywood film ever shelved, Devil Girl of Cannibal Island. The Atomic Bombshell, The Minx Devlin Chronicles, was produced in Hollywood, California by Tales Richly Spun. This production is directed, produced, and edited by Matthew Solari and written by R. Lee Proctor. Co-producer Kevin Whitaker, artwork by Rowan Proctor. Special thanks to Caitlin Mulder, Stephen Smith, Bob Rumnock, Brad Shelton, Chris Pavlica, Stephen Rabori, Justin Owadis, Tony Russomano, John Roden, Will Reinbold, and Piot Michael. Please visit richlyspun.com slash atomic bombshell to find books and movies that will illuminate the cultural darkness that produced the flourishing of film noir in the late 1940s. And richlyspun.com is also where you can pre-order the book that inspired this podcast, Mink Stevlin's astonishing autobiography that dishes the dirt and names the names. (laughs) 